Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Was there nothing worth fighting for? We are called to find something in our lives worth fighting for. An excerpt from Paul Oster's 1999 essay, Reflections on a Cardboard Box. A man does not live in a cardboard box because he wants to. He might be mentally deranged, he might be addicted to drugs, or he might be an alcoholic, but he's not in the box because he suffers from these problems. I've known dozens of madmen in my time, and many of them lived in beautiful houses. Show me the book in which it's written that an alcoholic is doomed to sleep on the sidewalk. He's just as likely to be driven around town by a chauffeur in a black hat. There's no cause and effect at work here. You live in a cardboard box because you can't afford to live anywhere else. These are difficult days for the poor. We've entered a period of enormous prosperity, but as we rush down the highway of larger and larger profits, we forget that untold numbers of people are falling by the wayside. Wealth creates poverty. That is the secret equation of a free market economy. We don't like to talk about it, but as the rich get richer and find themselves with greater and greater amounts of money to spend, prices have been going up. No one has to be told what has happened to the New York real estate market in the past several years. Housing costs have soared beyond what anyone could have thought possible just a short time ago. Even I, proud homeowner that I am, would not be able to afford my house if I had to buy it today. For many others, the increases have spelled the difference between having a place to live and not having a place to live. For some people, it's been the difference between life and death. Bad luck can hit any one of us at any time. It doesn't take much imagination to think the various things that could do us in. Every person lives with the idea of his own destruction, and even the happiest and most successful person has some dark corner in his brain where horror stories are continually played out. You imagine that your house burns down. You imagine that you lose your job. You imagine that someone who depends on you comes down with an illness and the medical bills wipe out your savings. Or else you gamble away your savings on a bad investment or a bad roll of the dice. Most of us are only one disaster away from genuine hardship. A series of disasters can ruin us. There are men and women wandering the streets of New York who were once in the position of apparent safety. They have college degrees, they held responsible jobs and supported their families. Now they've fallen on hard times, and who are we to think that such things couldn't happen to us? 
For the past several months, a terrible debate has been poisoning the air of New York about what to do with them. What we should be talking about is what to do with ourselves. It's our city after all, and what happens to them also happens to us. The poor are not monsters because they have no money. They're not people who need help, and it doesn't help any of us to punish them for being poor. The new rules proposed by the current administration are not just cruel in my opinion, they don't make any sense. If you sleep on the street now, you'll be arrested. If you go to a shelter, you'll have to work for your bed. If you don't work, you'll be thrown back onto the street and there you'll be arrested again. If you are a parent and you don't comply with the work regulations, your children will be taken from you. The people who defend these ideas all profess to be devout, God-fearing men and women. They should know that every religion in the world insists on the importance of charity, not just as something to be encouraged, but as an obligation, as an essential part of one's relationship to God. Why is no one bothered to tell these people that they're hypocrites? Meanwhile, it's getting later. Several hours have gone by since I sat down at my desk and began writing these words. I haven't stirred in all that time. The heat is rattling in the pipes and the room is warm. Outside, the sky is dark and the wind is lashing the rain against the side of the house. I have no answers, no advice to give, no suggestions. All I ask is that you think about the weather and then, if you can, that you imagine yourself inside a cardboard box, doing your best to stay warm. On a day like today, for example, 11 days before the end of the 20th century, out in the cold and the clamor of the New York streets. Paul Oster, December 20, 1999. 
It's been a strange and testing few months, and the reason we made this podcast was because we wanted to use this time to create a safe space for amazing people from different backgrounds to share stories of activism and to shed some light onto some of the biggest conversations of today, many of which have inspired the songs on our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. I'm speaking to you today from the dark and dingy depths of Mystery Jet's basement HQ in Clerkenwell, London, where I also live. Across this series, we've been taking a look over the landscape of social justice from a whole range of different peaks. But in my little corner of the world, something that's been particularly eye-opening during lockdown is the daily reality of people living with homelessness in central London. In ordinary times, my neighbourhood is a hive of activity, the streets buzzing with workers from surrounding offices and the almost constant din of passing traffic, roadworks and the rattling of scaffolding going up and coming back down. But the absence of workers here over the past four months has revealed a far more telling truth about who actually lives here. On any given day, and this isn't unique to living in a big town, but is especially true in a megacity like London, we're faced with a constant stream of micro-impressions, of people and situations we encounter throughout our daily journey, walking out the front door into the street, getting onto the tube, buying our groceries in the supermarket, on our bikes, at the gym, in the park... Much of the time we're oblivious to it, but all the while our subconscious is working away in the background, collecting readings and analysing the data, matching it up to prior experiences and forming associations. Whilst we might write off this process as meaningless mind chatter, what's actually happening is our brains making cognitive calculations. In a society where we judge people by the clothes on their backs, the colour of their skin, the houses they live in, accents, makeup, haircuts and so on, all of these amount to variables which determine our instinct of who we can trust, who to avoid, who may be from our tribe and who may pose a direct threat. From a young age, many of us are brought up to see the homeless as an inconvenience, not to be talked to, making them appear as something to be feared. Even the way that homelessness has historically been represented on screen as creatures of the night, drunks and vagrants, strips them of their humanity and conditions us to view them as a cautionary reflection of what could happen to us, rather than as victims of social neglect, abuse or an underfunded welfare state. There's an inevitable degree of delicacy required when it comes to conversations around homelessness, and therefore we need to tread lightly and regard those affected with the respect they deserve. It's worth mentioning that as a member of the disabled community, I have felt what it's like to be looked at differently, to be othered, but to experience the floor falling away beneath your feet and the reality of surviving solely on the kindness of strangers is beyond anything I could possibly imagine. A roof over our head is unquestionably the first rung on the ladder of social mobility. Without a permanent address, the prospect of employment, further education, assisted living income or job support are completely out of arm's reach. Everyone's story is unique to them, and although struggles with mental health are an incredibly recurrent statistic within homelessness, they're often accompanied by other unfortunate circumstances or instances of bad luck. It could be bereavement of a family member, sexual or physical abuse, illness, migration, council house supply and affordability, loss of a job, drinking or partying too heavily, getting into debt, gambling, financial pressure from landlords, and so on. It's so important to remember that we may all experience any number of these in our lives and that we too could one day find ourselves without a support system to fall back on somewhere down the line. 
As anyone who's experienced living somewhere like London, Berlin, Tokyo or New York will know, cities are like living entities, constantly being rebuilt on top of themselves and eating their own tails, a bit like Urobos, the serpent from ancient Egyptian mythology. What we love about our cities is also what we hate about them. They were always better before, whenever before was, basically whenever the person talking was 22. And gentrification plays a big part in that process, because as cities become de-industrialised, minority and LBGT communities, artists and young people move into neglected parts of town where night spots and live music soon start popping up. But before long, the real estate sharks start sniffing around and rents get hiked up. The minority and LBGT communities, artists and young people are priced out and the area becomes repopulated with professionals, high earners and yuppies. But high pressure jobs require sleep, so the night spots and live music are next to go and instead become tapas restaurants, cheese shops and, yup, good old pret-a-manger's. What was once an affordable neighbourhood fostering a creative community is now a complex of condos and carluccios. And sure enough, with wealth comes poverty and a new wave of unwanted residents. Sociocultural studies show that over the 20th century, urban redevelopment has incrementally employed hostile architecture in design strategy as a deterrent to loiterers and rough sleepers in our cities. Taking the hideously uncomfortable lean-to seats in London bus shelters as an obvious example, or measures such as anti-homeless spikes, sloped windowsills and so-called Camden benches with armrests purposely positioned to prevent people resting on them. As early as the 1940s, the American sociologist Robert Park foresaw these changes happening. In making the city, we make ourselves. One might wonder what collective self-conception has produced a city covered in metal spikes, illuminated by blue lights, buzzing with high frequencies, paranoid, anxious and hostile by design. Hostile architecture has even sparked a creative response in the art world. In 2018, British artist and activist Stuart Semple created a map of exclusionary city planning with a social media awareness campaign, encouraging the public to place identifying stickers on instances of hostile design in their environment. And in 2006, American artist Sarah Ross presented Archer Suits, a collection of clothing designed specifically to fit around the negative space of hostile architecture to enable more comfortable rough sleeping. At this point, I should probably point out that this isn't a podcast about urban redevelopment or brutalist design, but it strikes me as ironic that whereas once upon a time cities were fortified to deal with the enemy outside, their primary concern today is the enemy within. So who is this enemy and how big is the threat? The 2019 annual survey commissioned by Crisis found that the number of people sleeping rough in London has almost trebled in the last 10 years, alongside users of food banks more than doubling in the same period. A decade ago, as Mayor of London, Boris Johnson pledged to end rough sleeping in the city within three years. Yet since then, numbers have rocketed. Figures for 2018 to 19 showed that 8,855 people were recorded as bedding down on the capital streets last year, with this kind of increase mirrored across the UK's 320,000 people estimated to be living with homelessness. The UK charity Shelter directly attributed this to higher rents and a shortage of social housing, but a third of homeless women cite domestic violence as the reason that they're on the streets. 
40% of mental health trusts saw their budgets cut under David Cameron's austerity measures, with the trade union association Unison showing that the LBGTQ community, accounting for up to a quarter of young people on the streets, being some of those most affected, many fleeing difficult situations at home and never-ending waiting lists for counselling. Crisis also found that someone suffering from homelessness is reportedly nine times more likely to take their own life, and that the average life expectancy of a rough sleeper in this country is 44 years old, which is devastating. Much was made of the hotels which opened their doors to rough sleepers during lockdown, but from speaking to homeless people in my neighbourhood, I learned that many wouldn't accept dogs, or before first putting guests through rigorous and humiliating health checks. Clearly the legion of temporary empty hostels and hotels are not a viable long-term solution. And besides, there's something profoundly cruel about offering temporary safety, only to wrench it back the moment it becomes remotely expedient to do so. This is the austerity that victimises the poor, vulnerable and mentally unwell. And it's been projected that the economic effects of coronavirus could throw another half a million people into homelessness. Since 1967, one of the charitable organisations helping tackle the issue in the UK is Crisis at Christmas, who opened drop-in centres across the country for health checks, counselling and to serve hot food during the most bleak time of the year. For the past few years, we've been taking part in Crisis at Christmas by bringing along our guitars and stumbling our way through wham covers in silly hats. Whilst we've frequently been outsung by the guests, it's been heartening to see how music can help transport people to a happier place, even if only fleetingly, no matter what situation they're in. Another way we've endeavoured to use our voice as artists is by engaging in conversations around the devastation of homelessness through our songwriting, in particular Endless City off our new album. Lyrically, the song examines characters who are trying to get by as skyscrapers and luxury flats rise up around them, representing a culture they have no place in. You'll get a chance to hear that song in full at the end of this podcast, but in the meantime, here's Henry from the band, aka My Dad, to speak a little bit more about what inspired it. Endless City started with Will with some musical ideas and some lyrics. Um, which were very much to do with the difficulties of living in a city, the impersonal nature of it. And I think that the, the song evolved from that into a, a kind of vision of a dystopia. We were looking at some of the classic novels of the, the 60s, 70s and 50s, even like 1984 by George Orwell. Um, and then there's Fahrenheit 451, which talks about a society where people are not even encouraged to read any longer because it, they, they're trying to restrict freedom so that people actually are told what to think and are not allowed to find their own narrative. Even more modern things like The Hunger Games point to the, the same issues. So that was the background to the song. I've lived in London for pretty well 40 years, 45 years, and it's changed enormously. You know, there were fogs like 40% of the time. You see, sometimes you could hardly see 10 yards in front of you. So it was it was a very dirty place. There were always a lot of people um, in the underbelly of London. You know, right now, in the middle of COVID-19, the West End is has probably got more people living on the streets than they have going to work every day. So it's a very strange time. The point of view of the song, is from 
people that are, are struggling to actually get to grips with the city and they find themselves being left behind. You know, the, the protagonist of, of, of the song is probably one of those people and he feels disappointed and and he feels like a failure. But there's still hope in the song and I think it's the personal story that gives the hope. You're constantly trying to make sure that, that the things you really value are not lost in the process of just trying to live and, and survive in the city. Dan Smith is the singer and songwriter of the British band Bastille. Dan is also an ambassador for Streets of London, another amazing charitable organisation which funds specialist support for people suffering from homelessness in the city. Past projects have included funding English tuition classes for people marginalised by language barriers, life skill workshops for young people coming out of social care, and organising fundraising concerts featuring performances from artists like Jessie Ware, Wretch32 and Bastille themselves. Dan read an excerpt from Paul Auster's 1999 essay, Reflections on a Cardboard Box. There's one particular line, most of us are only one disaster away from hardship, which struck a chord with me. Just as today it was announced that payrolls in the UK have shrunk by 649,000 jobs during lockdown. I think it's so brilliant that Dan's using his platform to fundraise and increase awareness around homelessness. I want to thank him for recording this week's opening thought, especially for the podcast. Another artist using his voice to amplify and shape the conversation around homelessness is the person I'm about to speak to. Our guest on today's episode of Things Worth Fighting For is an amazing man a chef who cooked for the Queen during his time serving in the British Army, a survivor of homelessness and an advocate for mental health, a painter, sculptor, and perhaps best known as being the founder of the One Festival of Homeless Arts, an amazing organisation bringing marginalised voices a platform in the art world. David Tovey. I first met David back in January this year when we invited him to talk at Speaker's Corner, our panel event at the YouTube space in London. During filming, I felt a strong connection with David and admired him for discussing his experiences with mental health and homelessness, which he was so beautifully open in speaking about. I met with David again in February here at my house before the world went into lockdown, so we had the great privilege of speaking face to face, unlike some of the other episodes in this series, which were recorded online or over the phone. I hope you enjoy our conversation and I'll meet you on the other side. First off, thank you for taking time out of your day to be here. I've got so many questions for you. If I may, I'd love to go back to your formative years growing up in Kent in the late 70s, early 80s. Yes, that's showing my age now, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So you grew up in a a family of many brothers and sisters. Yeah, so there was, so um, I had four sisters, two brothers. Two of those uh, sisters are half-sisters and one of them's a half-brother. We had... Yeah, big family, um, big Christmases. I had fond memories of my childhood down in Kent. It was, I think, growing up in Kent, it does influence a lot of my work in a way. Um, and I've got plans to go back to some parts of it because I, I grew up on a farm, and we what were, part of Kent? So. Pretty much most of it. Um, okay. I'm, I was born in Maystone, and then 
Grew up in oh, Staplehurst, Baltimore, Chelsea, Selin, Faversham, Yolden, Tunbridge Wells. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, pretty much all over. Um, I spent a little bit of time living in Sea Salter. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. In a, in a beach hut down there, which oh, is amazing. very remote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Growing up in a, a big family, um, and I was the second youngest, and so you're that child who has to shout up a little bit to sort of like get yourself heard so I, I, I suppose in a way I was quite a cheeky chappy yeah. when I was youngster I was always quite loud eccentric flamboyant yeah. my brothers and sisters would probably say annoying because <laughs> um, I, I, I wouldn't stop talking all the time but I suppose it, it gave me that grounding, so which was great. And you left school quite early to join the army at the age of 16. What were the draws of a life in the forces at, at that age? Yeah, so growing up in quite a big family, um, with dad being a farm labourer, we, we didn't have a lot of money. So I really wanted to become a chef, and I couldn't afford to go to college to do it. So for me, the only other option I could see was doing it via the forces. Mm. Um, because at the time you would get your qualifications for free, you'd get paid, you'd get training. My dad was a chef in the army bef before I was born. So he was quite proud of the fact and he was out, he going, yeah, yeah. So he sort of helped me go through the whole processes of, um, joining. It was really funny because I, I was tiny, right? Mm. When I was 16, I was, just over five five I think it was five foot five less than seven stone I was just a tiny little skinny little runt of a thing and the guy who, I was only talking about this last night actually um the sergeant major who signed me up and did the interviews with me was like I've seen more fat on a chip <laughs> <laughs> he said you're never gonna make it he says like being a chef is one of the hardest jobs in the, the army you're the first ones in the last ones out but there's one thing I really, really do have, um, and it's stubbornness. I suppose some people call it resilience. Uh, mm. I call it stubbornness. But I was determined to make it. Yeah, I ended up being in there six years in the end. Wow. Did you see action in the army? Were you actually posted out to, would it have been Bosnia at that yeah, time? Yeah, so I did a short stint in Bosnia, um, very short. Um, I think it was not even six months. Um, I... I joined at a time where the first Iraq war was just coming to an end uh, in 91. Um, and then I left in 97, just before the second uh, Iraq okay. war. I'm very lethal with these hands. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm a pacifist. <laughs> but it, it was, it, I think it got to a stage where I was like, do you know what? Because I joined so young. Yeah. And I hadn't really figured out who I was. Like, I think joining the army as a 16-year-old is just too early. It was weird because I was, I was still struggling with not just the workload, the, the whole, I don't know, sort of, you know, the male sort of, you know, you've got to be a man and this sort of thing. And, um, you know, being... The kind of act tough yeah, mentality exactly. of the forces. And it, and, and it wasn't me. Um, I just, I found that whole drinking, fighting, blah, being like, you know lad and all this sort of thing I struggled with I just couldn't I couldn't deal with it plus I think my my views being a pacifist the army's everything that I'm against uh, it's just like why you know yes it, it's it's it gave me some grounding it gave me some organization in my life and stuff like that I think some of it's 
too much. I still fold my socks and stuff like mm. this, right? Mm. Um, which is really random. But it also, I think it gave me a lot of trauma because I hated it. I got to a stage that I hated it. So then I think because of my sexuality, I started to figure out who I was there as well. So this whole conflictingness of it all and knowing that I was suddenly in the army as a breaking the law mm. for doing a job. But I was doing a job, which I was being paid to do, etc. But hiding the fact of my sexuality, mm. um, because if they found out, then I'd be uh, asked to leave. Because um, I know you've been very um, open about your sexuality and mm. in, in talking about, you know, in, in your work and so on. And homosexuality didn't become decriminalised in the army until 2002. Yeah. I mean, that's shocking. I know, it's crazy, isn't it? And even when it first uh, was decriminalised, they still weren't allowed to be on frontline forces. But by this stage, that had eaten me up for years mm. um, because growing up in quite a heterosexual environment, then going joining the army, which is very heterosexual, and hiding and running away from who I was for that amount of time, then caused me problems for the rest of my life and I, I think people forget this they, they think you know coming out is easy or you know being who you want to be is easy it's not it's 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 one of the hardest things in the world to do it's taken me years to like myself I was only talking to a friend about this recently and I said you know it's taken me over 40 years to actually like who I am mm. and, to accept yeah, to, to, not even to accept, to actually like myself. Mm. Um, and I think this is where, you know, if you don't like yourself, you know, it causes massive, massive problems with your mental health and, um, and just the way you live your life. And, and we, we forget about that. You know, it's all accepted that you can come out now, but it's still really difficult for people because not everyone accepts it. And I think these are the problems that are going to be there for I would say centuries. Mm. Um, I really do. Obviously, I won't be alive that long. Um, <laughs> maybe my brain will be pickled in a jar somewhere. But <laughs> PTSD is commonly experienced by veterans and people who have served in the army. What sort of support systems are there in this country? Oh, so that's, that's a good one. So for somebody like myself who left the army so long ago, um, there isn't a lot of help there there wasn't when we left um there was no help you know, it was still that mentality oh get a grip grow up man like you know have some balls now in the army is a lot better um it's accepted more there is uh, mental health treatments and stuff like that whilst you're in the forces then it's down to the charities basically to pick up the the slack like SAFA, Royal British Legion, Veterans Aid, the guys who helped me. There is also help for heroes and there was combat stress but I've been told that they may be closing down because they're not getting funding anymore. So we'll see an increase of more trauma. You know the way I look at it right, you know, the MOD have responsibility for anyone who leaves the army, right? Because when you leave the army you leave as a reserve soldier. Right, so mm. it means that if if you go to war again, you're could be one of the first people to be recalled back up because obviously you're trained, you're ready to go, blah blah. But when that person is suffering, whether it's mental health, addiction, alcohol problems, you know, marriage breakups, whatever it is, like the MOD aren't there, um, and and for a lot of people, they end up falling off the rails and falling out on and going onto the streets and then treat, being treated like criminals, etc. 
But the MOD still have responsibility for these guys. So I don't understand why they're not helping more than they should. Um, it shouldn't be left down to the military charities to do it. I was really, really lucky, right, um, that when I was homeless, I was an ex-soldier because that gave me a head start with being able to, to uh, get rehoused, etc. The councils weren't helping, you know... Yes, I could have gone and got help from my family, um, but that's difficult when you're going through mental health, um, psychosis and different things like this. Mm. And, you know, you don't want your family to see that. So then the only option was left was the military charity. And I, and I really didn't want help from them because of what they caused me in the first place. I know yeah. the statistics are crazy. I think it's two out of ten ex-servicemen end up on the streets. Mm. I mean, do you think that man up tough up mindset in the forces is is principally to blame for veterans struggling to re-enter society yeah I, I do i think it's um a lot to blame you know i i even saw um the recent last year actually uh, the uh, mod were doing military campaigns to getting people coming in and they were saying um stop being snowflakes and all this sort of stuff and it was it was the same mentality yet again and it made me angry because mm. i thought you're basically flipping it, right? You you take these people who a lot of people who join the army have got some sort of problem or they're trying to get away from a situation or they're trying to, you know, better their lives. You strip them down, you basically damage their minds to mould them into a robot. And then when it comes to them leaving, they're just pushed and left mm. to deal with it themselves. Mm with no backup plan or anything like this. And it's just like, well, how dare you? A lot of these guys have had people slaughtered next to them, killed next to them, shot next to them. You know, they've had to go through, you know, a huge amount. It's like, you know, you can watch these programs where they've got their, all these, like, military training and stuff like that. That's not even half of what goes on. Like, you know, we used to get beaten shitless, like, you know, and, and you know, you're getting being woken up at two in the morning to go on a bloody 10-mile hike and stuff like this. And the pressure, it's like a big boiling pressure pot. And then they wonder why so many people's brains and minds completely go to pieces. You know, there was, there was some really good times in the army, you know, of being out in Norway and seeing the Northern Lights and stuff like this. Wow. You know, um, okay, we were living in tents at the time, um, and it was absolutely freezing. But, you know, there was those experiences I would never forget. Mm. But then the institutional side of it all, has traumatized me my whole life um and and i, and I think you know, that will always be there mm -hmm. i'm actually making a piece of artwork with with one of my old military belts at the moment wow um and it's it's just about and, and i'm writing um like trauma on it um because that's what it is to me um you know every time i i think about my time in the army it's like being hot and cold having like a cold, like some minutes you're feeling great about it, other times you feel rotten. Mm. Um, and that's what the military did to me. And I suppose the belt being this symbol of being constricted yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, I'm, so, I'm glad somebody gets what I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Understands my work. <laughs> um, so, so when you left the army, you pursued a career in kitchens yeah so you so you cooked and you even opened your own yeah so i so i left i left in 97 and went traveling for a little bit with my brother and came back and i thought right i need to sort of um 
first of all, I wasn't going to carry on chefing um, because I'd only knew how to be a chef in the army. Um, so for me, it was like, oh, I, I want to try something different. I tried selling vacuum cleaners for a while. Failed. <laughs> so much. I was such not a salesperson. Yeah. But it was fun for a bit. And then I, I, I went back into chefing and, yeah, travelled around. Um, I worked in... Uh, I went back to Australia for a while. I was out there for a year and a half, I think. And then moved to Plymouth. I was down there for seven years. Opened my first restaurant in Plymouth. I was really good at going into places and helping set places up. And it was really weird because they only ever used, they used to do all this like microwave stuff and I hated it. And I was like, I can't deal with this. So I, I threw all the microwaves away um, and then changed it to everything being cooked fresh because that's all I'd ever known. Mm. Um, and in Australia, that was the same when I was working out there. Everything was cooked fresh, octopus and squid and all this. It was amazing food. So I decided to bring some of that to Plymouth. Um, and then suddenly that started working in that place and then I, I went and opened another place. And then because I'd got success in these two places that I opened for other people, I tried doing it for myself and completely failed right. um, and went bankrupt. And I think that was, for me, that hit me quite hard because um, I'd been so successful for everyone else but failed at my own thing. When you um, put yourself out on a limb. Yeah, and I really struggled with that. So I, I started, um, I, I would drink a lot, um, you know, especially, yeah, a lot and every day. But then I decided to move to London because I thought, do you know what, there's no opportunity in Plymouth anymore. I think it was a good thing to do. Uh, that was in 2007. I started um, working at the exhibition centres, doing all the food there. I was only there for about five months because it nearly killed me. Mm. I was really struggling um, and I, I basically couldn't go into work. And in the end, one of the owners of the business phoned me and said, look, you're obviously struggling with this. Do you want to just call it a day? Um, so that's what I did in the end uh, with that one. And then I struggled for a little bit and then got off, offered an opportunity uh, to work at the BFI in the South Bank. Mm. Did that for a bit and then decided that I wanted to open my own place. So it's literally just down the road at Euston Station. I went in as a part owner. I owned the food business of the bar um, and Tom owned the rest of the business. It was great. The problem is I got quite complacent and it just became that, that hamster on a wheel I was getting bored mm. and, I, and I could tell that's what it was and that's when I then started to drink a lot more and party and not really care about myself. I mean, I've got friends who are in the restaurant business who have been pushed to the brink in terms of at work hours and whose partying habits are just as excessive. Do you, I mean, do you think the food industry is somewhere that there needs to be greater mental health awareness? The industry's hard. I went into it because... I could see it was a route out of poverty for me um, when I was a child. So I thought, you know, having a trade as a chef is a brilliant thing. You can work around the world, which I have done. I loved being a chef. Um, I was so passionate about it. And I say was because I think I lost that passion in my last, last positions. When you become the owner of a business, you lose that passion side of it because you're thinking more about, the money side, mm. um, how to pay the staff, like kitchen staff, etc., etc. You know all the taxes. So you sort of lose that passion, and um, I think because of that, and because of 
all the hidden traumas that I'd gone through, you know, it's, it's only so long that can last for, you know, until something goes. Um, and it was around then that you started having some health problems. I think it was 2011. I can't really remember. <laughs> long time ago. Yeah, yeah, it must be 2011. I had a stroke. For me, I think that was inevitable, to be honest with you. I think we seem to think that we're indestructible uh, as humans, but we're not. And it's so easy to forget about what's important, and that's your health, not realizing how stress can really affect you. Mm. I have now, I have it in my bag actually, a little stress test I carry with me all the time because I don't want to have another stroke, mm. obviously. And I was 36 when I had mine. It was an eye opener for me, mm. um, but it was also the first sort of steps of me really losing control. Mm. And I think up until then, I had sort of kept some semi-control of my life. Even though I was like drinking and addicted and partying and, you know, living to the excessives. Mm. Were you aware that time uh, that the partying had become out of control? No. 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 Uh, totally not. For me, that was my life. Yeah. And I'd done it for so many years, you know. Yeah, uh, I think the stroke was the first part of everything going wrong because that's when I was, I was still seeing uh, a, a young guy at the time and he struggled with that. With the deterioration of your health? Yeah, yeah. I think so. And shortly after you were actually diagnosed with cancer. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so... And did that, that must have come as a, a huge it shock. It was a shock. Um, basically, I was really ill and I was trying to do some part-time work because I still was trying to work as well. Basically, I, I'd had a rash about six months previous to this. Um, and went to the hospital in Maystone. I was down at my mum's at the time. And they said it was a thing called Pitocia rosia, um, which um, can be gone within six weeks. So I, I was like, brilliant. Six weeks, it gone. Six months down the line, um, I was driving home one night and the headlights blinding me. I couldn't see. I was li literally driving on. I was like, well, what's going on? And then big clumps of my hair were falling out. And I was like, what is happening? And so I, I made a doctor's appointment and the doctor said, oh, have you ever had a rash? And I went, actually, I had one six months ago. And it turned out I had, I'd had syphilis, but it, it was going into the next stages of neurosyphilis, which for most people takes about 15 years for it to progress. For me, it was a six months um, of me having it. I got put into hospital. They started doing treatments, lumbar punches. I was on this course of injections and I think it was about 20 odd tablets a day, two injections uh, in my buttocks and stuff like that. Into that, they'd taken all these lumbar punches and they found that something else and, and I had colon cancer. This was four days after me being admitted. So one thing, I was in the right place. So they cut it all out. I never had like a chemo treatment or anything like that. They just mm -hmm. cut it out. But psychologically, that does quite a lot to you. Ten days after that, um, I then received one of the injections I was having, which are intermuscular. They must have caught it on a vein and they injected straight into my vein, which caused my heart to stop. I had a severe reaction to it. I don't remember much of it. I only remember coming to on a paramedic trolley with umbrellas above me and I was like this is surreal and what was happening I had all these defibrillator pads over me and it was raining and I was like 
what is happening? Where the clinic was, they were running me on a trolley through a car park to the A&E department because it was the quickest way route through. Mm. I'll never forget that moment coming to and like that sensation and the noise and stuff. But the psychologists at the hospital were saying to me, you know, you've had so much happen to you over the last few months, like because that was the December of 2011 and I had my stroke in the April of 2011. Mm-hmm. So all this had happened all in this time. Um, and in that time I'd lost my, my first property, so I was living on someone's sofa. So this whole sort of thing, and, and I felt like I'd failed everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember sitting there just thinking, this is this is crap. And the psychologist said to me, at some point, your 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 mental health is going to completely implode on itself. And she was right. Implode wasn't the well, word That's a terrifying thing to hear for, it, for for anybody. It is, because they're saying to me, you know, that it doesn't matter what they say or do with me, because of the amount of traumas that I'd had, tying in with those, with my long-term traumas of what I'd been living through for many years, they believed that it didn't matter what they did, that it, what my mental health was going to implode on itself, and it did. Um, the first I realised it was happening was when I did five overdoses in a week, um, trying to kill myself. At that time, had you had an issue with substance abuse? I'd taken substances, um, but just as a recreational sort of thing, but never to the extent of trying to end my life. Um, Or or identifying as an addict? Yeah, I I don't know. So I I, I probably wouldn't have identified as one. Um, I was more of an alcoholic than anything. And then just other things became as part of lifestyle. I think it was this time was when it, started to with my mental health failing with the overdoses everything just was then becoming a problem Mm. i'd lost control um of everything and you didn't have anywhere to live at that point no um and then i started getting psych therapy Mm. and so this would have been going into let me think 2012 everything started to get better and i thought brilliant okay Life is slowly... I'm starting to get control again. A friend of mine had a spare room at hers, so I started renting. I got a job. I tried going back into restaurant cooking, working in a place in London Fields, a bar over there, as head chef. And things were going great. And then I started getting ill again. Didn't know what it was. I literally... I got to a stage where... I couldn't lift my arms and, and, and I was just really, really ill. Um, and I was just, I couldn't figure out what it was. And it turned out that it was um, HIV. That hit me quite bad. Mm. I was a bit like, oh, okay, that was unexpected. Mm. Because I'd been ill for quite a while at this stage, like, you know, and things were all going wrong and stuff. And um, I remember I, I found out on the phone, basically Croydon Hospital were phoning me saying... Um, we need to speak to you, can you come over? And I was like, by that time I was working in London Fields, it was, you know, and I said, look, I can't, I can't get over to you for several weeks. Um, and he went, well, we, we need to see you tomorrow. Like, and I went, well, why are you, and, and I literally said it to him. I said, can you what? not just tell me? I, well, I said to him, I said, what, you're going to tell me I'm HIV positive now? Like, you know, and I just did it as a joke. Yeah. And she went, yes, I am. And I was like, oh, and I started laughing. And I don't know if it was because it was a nervous laugh or what. And, and I turned around and said, 
well, actually, you, that's the best thing I've heard all day. And, and, I, and I truly meant that because I think it suddenly gave me an answer um, and it's something that I thought, well, actually, I can, I can deal with this because I know what it is. Mm. So suddenly, everything that had gone on previous, I then blamed it all on the HIV. You know, my relationship broke down because of that. You know, my mental health broke down because of that. You know, all this sort of stuff. Even though that had nothing to do with it, I then used HIV as, I suppose, an excuse. So then because of that, I would then, my mental health started to get worse. After I got that phone call from the hospital, I hung up and I phoned my mum straight away. And I said to her, I said, you know, I've been ill recently. It's because I'm HIV positive. And she went, all oh, right. She goes, I thought that's what it was. And I went, pardon? And she went, yeah. She goes, but don't worry. There's really good medicine now, blah, blah, blah. And she started reading off all this stuff. And I went, how do you know this? Mm. And she goes, oh, I've been doing some research on it. Because she didn't want my nieces and that to say, is Uncle David dying? Right. So she wanted to have, uh, I suppose, proof that I wasn't going to die. And isn't, to, I mean, isn't, and, isn't and to that, sort of break down the stigma side of it as well. Isn't that funny? Because I, I do think there's something about mothers. They mm. have an inbuilt sense of if something's wrong, yeah. they can sense it and, yeah, they, totally. and, and they, can, they can see the shape of it. Yeah, I totally agree, actually. But even um, in, in your situation before you could, your, yeah. your, your mum yeah, had I those Yeah, I didn't have a clue. Like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? That was the last thing in my head that it'd be HIV. Last thing in my head. I was not expecting that at all. So for my mum to think it was, like, wow. So the following day after that phone call, I went to the clinic and my mum came with me, right, to my very first HIV appointment. And she travelled up to London from Kent and she goes, come on, we can do this. Um, and she was like a rock. And, um, and I was so proud to actually be in this clinic with my mum for the first time where I'd always pretty much run away from my family. Mm-hmm. But mum was there for me. And she always has been, even when I was like on the streets, you know, she was always there for me. I couldn't utilise my family as much as I wanted to. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Hi there. This is the bit in the podcast where you might normally hear an advert for something, but instead of telling you about stamps.com or weird mail order smoothie kits, I just want to have a quick word in your ear to tell you about an amazing organisation called Streetwise Opera. Celebrating their 20th year, Streetwise was set up to combat the notion of the homeless being people you might step over coming out of the theatre. Instead, asking the question, why couldn't they be the ones singing arias up on stage? Streetwise Opera works across five cities in the UK and have staged numerous critically acclaimed productions, providing weekly singing and acting workshops with people who have been or are currently suffering from homelessness. Pure joy. It's the best way I could describe it. It made me happy and confident. It made me smile a bit more. The phrase that I like to use is you're one P45 from going down. Because I've seen people who've like had really successful jobs and then that one redundancy sent them spiralling. Never heard of an opera in my life, never seen one. From to me, it was more like, oh, it's a rich person's thing. And, and then I went to my first opera and I absolutely loved it. My name is Daryl. Makes me feel like I'm not invisible and it makes me feel alive.
It got me out of a dark place that I was in. It made me want to live my life again where I didn't want to before. I retired. I was getting a bit through the lethargic. Now I've come back to life with the vengeance and God help anybody who gets in me way when I'm singing. Wally, we pass the King of France before the revolution. Way that was an extract from performers taking part in a singing workshop organised by Streetwise Opera. Links in the show notes for more info on future productions and how Zoom workshops are keeping performers engaged during lockdown. Thanks for listening. Now let's go back to David Tovey. Talking of being on the streets, I know there was a point where you, you had a car and that was where you slept. Was that before this? Or did, did no, that come after. Later? That come yeah, later? after. Okay. So when I got my diagnosis... I knew that I couldn't work in the kitchens anymore. Um, well, I can legally, but I didn't feel comfortable uh, working in the kitchens just in case I cut myself and stuff like that, which is silly really because it's, it's near on impossible to pass on. It's, it's such a hard virus to pass on. But mentally, I just couldn't deal with knowing that I could pass on. So I decided to pull out and, and I, I went to university. I was 38 going to do a fine art degree mm. um where did you so i went to london met uh, the cass the john cass um down in whitechapel, whitechapel yeah. i went there to do a foundation course with a degree attached to it afterwards during my my foundation course i, I made several films um, but I made one about hiv awareness mm. nobody in my university knew apart mm. from my instructor that i was hiv so then suddenly i made this film where i was around london holding billboards like a sandwich board type thing with statistics of HIV. And then I presented that to my whole course and everyone was like, wow, we didn't know. Mm. We didn't know. And that was the first time I sort of thought, actually, this social art type thing I quite like. I like that I have the ability about talking about something that I'm going through and and turning it into an art form Mm. because it's pointless... I always say this, it's pointless protesting about something because it makes you look like a preacher sometimes. Um, But if you can do it through art, whether it's music, film, theatre, photography, whatever, people engage more with it. So I did my first foundation year um, and I finished in June. And for some reason I went into like a real big patch of depression and I basically did a fatal overdose um, on the 20th of June, 2013. I'll never forget that day um, for me because it was, it was, I still don't know why I did it. I know that I was sitting under a load of trees in Highbury Fields and I sat there thinking this is a great place to die. But then, you know, I just had a really great year and I don't understand, I still don't understand why I chose to do it. Because you'd found art and you'd found yeah. a means of expression. Exactly. And, 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 I'd, and, and pe- I'd made new friends and, and, and people were accepting me for who I was and stuff. And I think that was the problem. I think suddenly I felt accepted. Mm. And I couldn't deal with that, first of all. And yeah, I just, I went into park and took a fatal overdose. I remember doing it and then panicking mm. and thought, what the fuck have I just done? I started to try and walk across the park and I went to lean on this lamppost and I don't remember anything after that 
for me, that should have been a turning point. That mm. should have been saying, you know, there's something seriously wrong. Um, but it wasn't because when I came out of hospital, I got home to find that all the locks had been changed on my flat. But still, that didn't stop me, like, you know, going down this route of... Because I was suddenly like, well, if that didn't kill me, I'm indestructible mm. again. But obviously found myself in my car, living in my car. Um, and I was in the car for, I think it was around about four and a half months, uh, maybe a bit longer, I can't remember. Um, my health deteriorated. I couldn't take my HIV meds um, because I wasn't allowed to have them because there was nowhere safe and secure to keep them. So everything started deteriorating. And, and Had I, you stopped going to art school at this point? Yeah. So, well, I say yes, I was trying to still go and I was struggling. I was being called in by the university saying, you know, attendance and blah, blah, blah and all this. And, and I was starting to get angry. Mm. And uh, I had my university writing to the government to say this guy needs help. I had chat, uh, the Citizens Bureau. They were writing, um, I was going into the council every day to try and get help and I wasn't getting any help. And at this point, I hadn't eaten for about three days and I was skinny. I'd gone down to about 65 kilos, I was tiny. And that's when I went into the park where um, on Isleton Park Road um, in Islington and started to kill myself. Mm. And... What I remember about this night, um, and this is the, the turning point in my whole story, was the fact that I was crying my eyes out. I remember that. And I remember I was rocking on a chair on the bench. And I think it took me quite a while to pluck up the courage to do it. And, and I started doing it. And then suddenly there was this voice. And this, it sounds quite, you know, uh, biblical in a way um, because it was a lock park. It was dark at night. Um, and suddenly there was this voice, this bloke's voice going, what the fuck are you doing? Mm. And it, and it threw me and I was like, what, 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 like this, right? And then this guy, I think I was sat here, he sat next to me and he goes, what are you doing, mate? And we started talking and I literally, I was in tears. I couldn't look at him. Mm. Like I literally could not look him in the face. I was looking at the floor. I was crying. I was like muttering I was like I think I'd, I'd I'd lost everything by this stage I was at my lowest point again so it had gone from being a as you described a, a call for help to actually at this point you had decided yeah. I, I'm I'm done with it yeah um, it's really hard to explain but if you imagine believing that you're not going to wake up the next day mm. or not being able to see yourself waking up the next day that's what it was like for me. But I also didn't want to wake up the following day because I'd had enough. Um, I'd had enough of going into the council office, trying to ask for help. You know, I'd had enough of being wet, being cold, not eating, sleeping on, in a Peugeot 206, you know, and my health was bad. It, it just got to a stage that I'd, I'd had enough um, mm. and I, I couldn't see it. So this time, no, I was doing it. So then suddenly to have this guy sat there and listen, and that was the best thing he did, was just listen. Um, And I think I was there for, must have been a couple of hours with him, crying my eyes out, literally 
telling him everything about living in my car, not eating, all, this whole thing. I told him the whole, my whole backstory of why I was trying to do it. And he never judged me. Um, and, I, and I think, for me, that's what was really important because, in a way, this time I wasn't asking for help, but he was offering it. Mm. Um, and, and I think... That's what made the difference, I think. I th this is what I think. Mm. I don't know what made my brain click and accept the help. Uh, Did you stay in touch with the park enforcement officer? Yes. At the time, I never knew what his name was. I thought it was Steve for some reason. I got to meet him in 2015. So this happened in November time in 2013. And then some friends of mine started to make a documentary and said, do you want, could you, would you be willing to go back to the, 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 that, that bench? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I hadn't been back there since that day. And I was really nervous about doing it. But then I was like, okay, I'll do it. Got to the park and it took me an hour. No, it was actually longer than that. <laughs> to get around to the bench, I was like, I can't do it, I can't do it. Got there. And we were talking on the bench and stuff. And then I saw this park enforcement van pull in. And I went, oh, my God. I said it was one of those guys who saved my life, not knowing that these guys had traced him and found him. And he walked around the corner. And they, they had actually set up the meeting. Yeah. They hadn't told me because they, they knew that I would have said no because... When they were asking me beforehand, what would you do if you met him? I said, oh, I don't think I'd like to. And they were like, why? I said, well, because he saw me at my lowest point, um, you know, and, and that's quite embarrassing, you know. And what do you say to somebody who's saved your life? So they didn't tell me. Um, and in a way, I'm so glad that they didn't because this guy came round and he was amazing. He was the nicest guy and I got to have a cry with him again and chat with him. But I then also got to... And this he must in, have been, I mean, delighted to see It was you. amazing, right? Because he said to me, he said, when stuff like that happens, they never really get to know what happens after. Yeah. Um, and he said it was so nice to actually sit and chat with me and, uh, and say, wow, that moment was a catalyst for you to move on which it was, um, and I got to talk about stuff that I'd done, you know, I, I, you know, and at the time I hadn't done that much, but everything I had done was because of him. Yeah. So by having my first exhibition to selling my first picture, I did a picture for the mayor, a deputy mayor of Rio um, when he was over and I presented it to him and all this sort of stuff, I got to share that with him. He's now on my newsletter as well, so he follows everything that I'm doing okay. and it is for me I think this is where Man on Bench yeah that's that, yeah. so that's what I wanted to speak to you about so Man on Bench is it's an opera mm. it was exhibited at the Tate yeah which is which is incredible it's nuts isn't it <laughs> <laughs> I mean in that journey you know describing getting sick having the deterioration of mental health finding art you know doing a foundation course how did it feel looking back, you know, because all that happened quite quick succession. Mm. What was the process with, with Man on Bench? How did it come together? So I got introduced to this guy called Yusef Patel. Amazing, amazing guy 
who used did this community project called Clothing the Homeless. And he wanted me to design a T-shirt for him, which they could sell, make a bit of money, um, stuff like that. And so I designed this T-shirt, and it was off a Routemaster bus. And on the back of the T-shirt was all the places that I'd slept uh, whilst I was homeless. So it looked like a tour T-shirt, you know, right. like, a, like a band tour yeah. T-shirt. So I had like, and I was like, that's a really good place to sleep, et cetera, et cetera. And then I've got like the park and life-changing moment all written on this T-shirt. And I said to him, I said, how are you going to sell it and stuff like that? And he said, oh, we're just going to do it online. And, and I was like, oh, it's a bit boring, isn't it? You know, can't we do something like a fashion show or something? And they were like, oh, that's a great idea, but who do we get to make all the clothes and everything? And I went, well, try and get somebody. We couldn't. So I was like, well, I'll make some. It can't be that hard, can it? So I bought this 20-pound broken sewing machine, pretty much taught myself to sew by following YouTube videos and trying to make... It is incredible what you can learn to do on YouTube. (laughs) It's crazy, right? And I created, I think it was about 12 full outfits, like, and we decided just to do a protest fashion show on the South Bank, guerrilla style. So, you know, we didn't get permission uh, or anything like this. Yousef hired a hotel to, like, their conference rooms to use uh, for hair and makeup. We managed to get a guy called Phil Foller called to do the hair who won a BBC Two programme. Mariam, who came and did makeup, and a girl called Kat. Um, we had another hairdresser. Everyone volunteered time uh, to come and do this. And I was really ill on the day as well. I wasn't very well. But I persevered. And we basically walked these models down the South Bank. All the way down to the skate park. Then we had photos with the general public. And then down to where the ITV studios are. And there's a pier there. And we did a catwalk on the pier. And that's what it was, right? And this guy was walking along and he saw it. And he went, oh, what's all this about? So I had a little card saying, man on bench. And it was just to get, it was basically to create a conversation around homelessness. That was all it was trying to do. To show different elements of it. And uh, he went, he went, oh, this is amazing. He goes, I'm the deputy arts editor of The Economist. Can I interview you at some point? So we ended up doing a blog, uh, like a podcast blog thing, um, which went out on Christmas Eve 2015 um, and got listened to by over 5 million people, I think it was in the end. It was huge. And that's how Man on Bench started because I was like, when I got asked, what are we going to call it? I went, well, I've got to name it after Gavin. Yeah. Gavin so, was the park enforcement yeah. officer. So um, I said, let's, let's call it Man on Bench. Yeah. And it sort of stuck. So I did that one. And then I got, Yusef then got asked whether I'd be interested in doing it at this award ceremony. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'd love to. And this award ceremony was people in Camden. Uh, it's called Camden Adults Pathway Awards. Um, and it's for people living with addictions, mental health, homelessness, you mm. know, sort of problems. Um, and they get awards given to them um, for, you know, being great and uh, recovery and stuff like that. And um, so I did it there. And the next thing is I then got this email from people 
researching to do this show at the Tate Modern. Which you thought was a, was, was, was a scam. <laughs> I did, yeah. I thought it was a scam. So I told them to F off. <laughs> and um, that was probably near enough one of my biggest regrets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Luckily, I was then at a forum, a homeless arts forum. And Jess Turtle from the Museum of Homelessness stood up and said, I've been trying to get hold of you about this show at the Tate. And I went, oh, it's not bullshit. It's actually <laughs> real. And yeah, and then went to view the Tate. And, but I did say to him, I said, I would do it, but only if I can put an installation piece in as well um, about homeless veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously being a homeless veteran, being for somebody who uh, are gay or queer, whatever, I, I still don't know how to self-identify myself, mm-hmm. but to be a person who had so much trauma and let down by the military, to be somebody then advocating for change mm-hmm. uh, and raising awareness of homeless. So I made a piece called Soldier's Story. Soldier. Yeah. Which um, is a very powerful piece. I Thank you. I uh, appreciate that. I... I think it's my best piece of work I've ever made. I think it will always probably be my best piece I've ever made because I think it it says it as it is. It's real. Uh, And you're in it. Yeah. I was quite... I found it difficult putting my story into it, but I didn't want people thinking that I was using other people's stories to benefit myself and I think that's really important because I I suppose I think this is how I think the work my work's evolved over the last five years Um, and I do put my story and my life into my work more than I ever have you know I think that's incredibly important when you're making social art is finding what what piece of that puzzle you represent and how you slot in and I think it brings a an authenticity to it, obviously, as well, and, and, and you know, a sense yeah. of your life experience. I suppose it's ownership as well, isn't it? Right, um, yeah. And I think for years, like uh, I was saying earlier, I, I never liked who I was mm. um, and ran away from who I was until, obviously, it caught up with me and I tried killing myself. And for many years, this, this happened. And, and I think it's because I didn't own myself I was always living someone else's life so I think by putting my life into my work it finally gives me ownership of that life mm. when we've spoken before you know I, I you know I'm, I'm not concerned about making money from my work yes it would be lovely um you know we'd all love to make money wouldn't we but that that's not the importance I think for me Especially Man on Bench, I don't own Man on Bench. Uh, Man on Bench is the art piece, it's the story, it's that moment, it's that moment on the bench. You know, so everything that I do with Man on Bench is basically to highlight that Gavin did the right thing, Mm. that he stepped in at someone's lowest point. I always thought that I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't step in and do that what he did I think I probably could now mm. it's taken me years to realise that but I think that's quite incredible because I, th- I do think art has the ability to communicate things where our words fail us you know it can speak 
on a whole other emotional level mm. and communicate the most extreme things that happen to us in life. I mean, I think music, I think at its best can do that as well. I think something where music suffers is I think it's not often that artists, particularly in the realm of social commentary, are prepared to stick their heads so high above the parapet and actually stand up and make statements because there is always this fear in music of alienating an audience, of losing followers, you know, in the digital age. And I've always admired how that isn't that isn't a concern in art for all to call it fine mm. art. I don't like that term, but to me ultimately it's about storytelling. Yeah. And you're you're telling a story that not a lot of people would have necessarily an experience of, but everyone could empathize with that mm. because you've described going to such an extreme and coming back from that brink and you saw what it looked like peering over that cliff and um how a complete stranger is capable of having the kindness and the empathy to to be there and listen to listen to you when you needed. And I, and I think that's the the most important part of the story is it was a stranger. It wasn't anyone I knew, even because I wouldn't let anyone get close to me in that sort of sense. Um, I think knowing a stranger saved my life. That's when I realised that I needed help. And I could accept it. How do you identify with the term outsider art? Because I know, historically speaking, it feels like artists who have used their work to communicate issues, particularly around mental health, mm. and also who haven't wanted to comply with the art institution and the, the sort of high society snobbery of, of the fine art world, get this label of outsider artist. I mean, how do you feel about it yeah I, I i do struggle with it right because i struggle with labels anyway um you know uh, it's like i think this is why i can never really identify with my sexuality and yeah. stuff like um and who i am and stuff so i think the art world use it as an excuse to not represent or show real art i think the, the art world seems to live in a fantasy, the, art, the, the main art sector, that, you know, that everything's all shiny and, like, um, there's not much going wrong and there's not, you know, there's equality and diversity and all this in the arts, which is complete bollocks, as we know. Outsider artists also are looked at as in inferior to the art world, mm-hmm. um, it seems to me that it, it it comes attached with this notion of the work is is going to be childlike or naive. Mm. Which really cracks me up because then you look at Picasso who then famously said, it's taken me all my life to be able to paint like a child. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Who is an amazing draftsman from, from being an art student. Exactly, you know, but... yeah. So this is why I, I, it always cracks me up because I think when people get into the main, like, you know, there are some phenomenal artists out there, right? Who some are homeless, some are living in poverty and stuff like that, right? But they just don't have the access, right, to be able to showcase their work. Um, and and I, and and that's I, I get really annoyed about, right? Because oh, I just get annoyed, I get angry. I w- I worked on a project with a guy called Ben Wilson, who he's become quite known as the, as the chewing gum man. So he, he paints on chewing gum and he, he, uh, Millennium Bridge leading over to the Tate actually. 
is covered in these little pieces of chewing gum, which if you look down, you can see them under your feet. And he's often out there in his high-vis jacket making these incredible no ornate, ornate paintings. And, and they're not to be sold. They're just, they're all, and they're all commissioned. So people stop him on the bridge and they, they tell him their stories, their life stories. And he turns them into these incredible ornate bulb wow. chewing gum paintings. And something that repeatedly comes up um, as I've got to know Ben is is this common kind of mistrust of being misrepresented, of being exploited, of being kind of packaged up and sold as something. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that feels like a very common story with artists. You know, it's, it's like saying, well, yes, of course I want my work to be seen, but it isn't, a, it isn't necessarily a... a, a something to be commodified or a commercial entity. I make this because this is my medicine. This yeah, is exactly. my food. Yeah. This is what I do. That's that's a really good point because the amount of people keep saying to me, oh, you don't you don't want to be stuck in this outsider arts or you don't want to be stuck in the disability arts sector because it will ruin your career. Um, and I'm like, well, one, I'm not thinking of a career. You know, I make art because I make art. I really hate this whole branding idea. Um, okay, I suppose I suppose that in a way, Man or Bench has become a brand in itself, um, but I don't look at it in that sort of sense um, because I'm not marketing it as a brand. Mm. But the art world, they, they insist on you being a brand so then they can sell you mm. because they're selling you. They're not selling your paintings. Mm. They're not selling your artwork. They're selling your name. They're selling you, mm. yeah. Um, and and I and that's where I get I get upset in a way because I think well, what gives you the right to, to own s- me? Exactly. Hi there. Sorry to be barging in again. This is the part of the episode which we like to use to signal boost other artists, podcasters, or writers who are doing great things. This week, I want to tell you about a great podcast called Off the Beat and Track with Stu Whiffin. It's released through Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces Network, and each episode features a candid and often very emotive interview with a special guest, talking about the seven songs which have shaped their lives. Stu's one of the hardest working podcasters in the UK and has had everyone on, from Baxter Jury to Clara Ampho to Frank Carter and the Rattlesnakes, even to Little Old Me. Here's Stu talking to friend of the band Orlando Weeks ahead of his bold new record, A Quickening. So I'm a big fan of Arthur Russell and he's been um, kept me very good company and has been a big influence on the music I'm making now and I'm sure lots of people will have heard of Arthur Russell but maybe they wouldn't have heard the newest record that his estate has released which is called Iowa Dream. I think it's the first song on, on there is a song called Wonder Boy. I find it really hard to listen to that and it not immediately lift my mood. I think that that is a, an extremely powerful thing for a piece of music to be able to do without it feeling sentimental or having that emotion sort of synthesized somehow for anyone that hasn't heard that that is interested in arthur russell or wants something that might make them smile i think i think that's a that's a good that was a sample of orlando weeks speaking to Stu whiffin for his brilliant podcast off the beat and track links down in the show notes to find out more thanks for listening now let's go back to david I don't really like the term social commentary, but I think in your art you do vocalise what you see around in society and also in particular in mental health in regards to your, your own experiences. 
in a way which is very honest. I try to do that in my music as well. I mean, what role do you think art has to play in the divided politics of Britain today? Because we do feel more polarised than ever. I yeah, mean, I think artists have the, the ability to tell the truth um, and get the truth out there because I think that's something which is not in politics anymore. We seem to have forgotten what's right and wrong and we're led to believe that hate is this only way ahead and division. Mm. Um, so I think artists have this job to do about being able to bring people... I know I hate this term, bringing people back together, but we've got to do something because if, if it carries on the way it's carrying on at the moment, then it's, it's going to create war. Mm. Um, and what war does is create trauma. Uh, it creates loss. Um, and, um, and I don't think we can afford that. But at the moment, you know, we have the ability to, you know, through art, make some serious changes um, and tell the truth. You know, I suppose in a way, social art is protest art. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, we're we're talking about stuff that we're passionate about raising awareness of or changing. Mm-hmm. All my work is a protest um, in a way, and it's all highlighting injustice. This is where outsider artists mm-hmm. come alive mm-hmm. because we're not constricted by the galleries. Mm-hmm. We can pretty much go out there and and tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, and, and, and I've had it myself, like I've had a few people complain about my art because they obviously don't like the truth mm. um, and the truth hurts. Or the truth is perceived as ugly and we think art needs to be pretty. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it needs, it mean, do you know exactly that? It needs to be pretty so we can put it on our walls, mm. so we can have our cup of coffee or our, 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 our Battenberg cake by a beautiful picture. You know, I'd like to see some politicians doing some fine art mm. i'd like to see what they would come up with like you know if they were actually telling the truth mm. but from a different gaze through art by having that option to do art whether it's through therapy or whether it's just as a hobby saves the country or the world so much money mm. and for me personally I, I always say that art saved my life and I, and I truly believe that because you know having something to focus on when in my recovery mode I, I couldn't have, I couldn't have done it I couldn't have like got to where I've got to I, I wouldn't have been able to do that without art because I needed something to stimulate my mind and to take away all the bad thoughts etc etc now I take away those bad thoughts but I then put them on to paper or I put them in to theatre or I put them into opera. This is why art should be in every school. They should have art in every doctor's surgery. Imagine in a waiting room if you've got somewhere where you can just sit and paint and stuff. Do you know what I mean? Every library should have it. Um, I mean, I suppose this brings us on to the question of inclusivity, which I know is something that you and I spoke about mm. a few weeks ago at Speaker's Corner. Yeah. You know, We had a great evening talking about that. And Do you think art is as accessible as it should be you know is it possible for fine art uh, to speak to people from all backgrounds no I, I don't think it is um it definitely doesn't talk to everyone like you know when you think huge amounts of investment goes into private education um and private schools and they have art you know uh, foundations etc cetera, etc cetera. you know i go into primary schools and 
you've got a class of 50 children and free paintbrushes, mm. you know, it's not accessible mm. at all. The problem is, is that art and creativity helps you think, mm. right? It helps you think for yourself. It helps you work things out for yourself. And the problem is that governments don't want everyone to think for themselves because then everyone would realise what bad jobs our politicians are actually doing. Mm. And protest, like, you know, mm. this is why protesting in England is so shit compared to what it is in France. Mm. You know, we just wave flags and banners and walk down the street. Mm. In France, they, pro they throw grenades, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And smoke bombs, like, you know. But they actually protest because they, 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 they actually understand because they have art is really well supported in their school systems. Um, yeah, it, which to me does play into this idea that the art world is still seen externally as being this a sort of symbol of the middle class high high society elite i mean i've got a question about funding because we were talking about um arts council funding cuts obviously under cameron under austerity one of the places that was most acutely felt was mental health treatments mm -hmm. and mental health um subsidies with the cuts of the personal independent payments and all the reassessments of disabled people which I know you've got yeah. experience of as well I think I could understand why someone today would say well why are we funding the arts when the NHS is underfunded which as a huge I've spent half my life in hospitals mm -hmm. I'm a huge advocate of the NHS but I think what your story tells us is that the ties between mental health and art are so strong, they're so vivid. And I think your work is a, and your story is a testament to the the medicine that art can be. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and I think that there is huge crossover with it all. Um, like I said, you know, if I hadn't have had the access to art, I don't think, well, one, I don't think I'd be alive now, right? But I think it would have also cost the NHS huge amounts more money um you know it it would cost me i i will probably be taking antidepressants every day which i don't mm. because i use art as my antidepressant mm. i know it sounds really weird but it's true mm. because we over medicate in this country with everything mm. um i've been on that detox recently of a lot of meds um i'm now down to two tablets a day which is great and that's another thing you know the cost side of not having arts would be astronomical. We're now entering another five years minimum of further Tory leadership and separating from Europe has finally become a reality. Where will you be looking to find a sense of hope moving forward into the next decade? I think we have to start looking into ourselves. Um, I think in this country we are so stuck in the way of having someone lead us right and and keep telling us that they're doing stuff when they're not and and and, and it causes massive problems it causes mental health problems etc etc i think we've just got to give up on it and just go actually i'm gonna i'm gonna fight for myself um and i think that's where the hope's got to come from because if more people start standing up for what they believe it becomes a movement mm. in a way and 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 I, and I think that's 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 something to grab onto and that's some it's a friend of mine matt peacock who i, I work for in charity and uh he, he 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 says this analogy he goes 
as one stick, right, it's quite easy to break, isn't it, right? Mm. You know, and it all falls apart. But if you bring loads of sticks and bring them together, they're really hard mm. to break, mm. right? And that's what, like, coming together and, and building a movement can do. Mm. Um, and it starts with one person, like Greta. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? I was just going to say that. It's, yeah. it, and, and it's exactly that, you know. It's having, you know, somebody stand up and go, actually, this is wrong. Mm. This shouldn't be happening, you know. And then create that movement around it and say, look, you know, I, I'd never understand, right, you know, I was talking about this with you a couple of weeks ago and saying about when, when people go out and protest and, you know, and they go out on an environment and there's like 200,000 people marching and stuff like that. And, and, but then when there's a, a protest about people dying homeless on the streets, nobody turns up. Mm. And, and I think, why? The last one I went on, I think there was about a hundred of us mm. turned up and I thought, this is actual people dying mm. on our streets every day at the moment. You know, I think it was 800 in the last 18 months. Mm. And um, I mean, homelessness has, has doubled mm. in the UK in the last 10 years. Yeah, and, and, and I can't see it getting better under this mm. admin, administration, mm. government. I don't know what you want to call them. A bunch of dicks, basically. Um, I, I am quite political, I, I am. I, I, I actually really like politics, mm. and it upsets me that people who don't understand politics vote dickheads in. Mm. We all should have the right. We should all be taught politics. Mm. Like you know, it's not taught in, in like comprehensive schools. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Well, if I could just jump forward, I'd say that you know you've shared your story so generously, no for which worries. I'm hugely thankful. I mean, if you could fly back in time in a time travel machine and speak to your 16 year old self embarking out into life in the adult world what words of either encouragement or warning would you give yourself mm. I've, uh, funny enough I've actually thought about this a lot especially over the last few years I mean, like I was saying earlier you know, it, it's taken me over 40 years to like myself and it's something I've struggled with so I think if I was going back to my 16-year-old self, I probably would have said, be yourself, don't run away, don't hide who you are, who you truly are. This is the bit where I'm going to ask you a question which we like to ask each of our guests. What are three things that you believe are worth fighting for? Jeez, um, that's something I've never thought about. Um, life justice social housing yeah David thank you so much I know our fans and listeners will continue to be inspired by your story and all the messages in your art it's been an absolute pleasure and it means so much to have these conversations thank you so thank you no thank you so much I appreciate coming in thank you man thanks man Thank you for listening to episode six of Things Worth Fighting For, and also to both Dan Smith and David Tovey for giving their time so generously. Take a look in the show notes for links relating to this episode, including David's powerful artwork and his performance piece, Man on Bench, and also how to catch up on Dan's book and film club, Distraction Tactics, which has been keeping many people sane during lockdown. 
We'll be back very soon with another episode, so stay tuned. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a little rating if you enjoyed the show. This episode was brought to you by Acast and produced by Matthew Twaits. Cheers, Matt. Thanks to Courtney Aisha Mortimer at UROC for all her amazing help and coordination skills. And now, to play you out, we're going to listen to Endless City from our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. Stay safe and I'll see you next time. Endless city, I'm lost, will you show me the way? Endless city, I am barking up the wrong tree today Endless city, in my home and my horizon But could I ever step off the treadmill that I'm moving along?
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.